Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Virginia Stanley. I'm Lainey Mays. And Essie Ramirez. We are the library marketing team at HarperCollins Publishers. Join us every week as we present buzzworthy books through author interviews, conversations with editors, and expert opinions from librarians like you. Enjoy the show. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Fest. Hello, everyone. I'm Katie Mediator Stover. I'm the Director of Reader Services for the Kansas City Public Library. I am guest hosting for HarperCollins Library Love Fest podcast, and I am so lucky to chat with Christopher Moore, author of Practical Demon Keeping, Lamb, Shakespeare for Squirrels, and his latest, Razzmatazz, a follow-up to Noir. So thank you, Chris, for joining us this evening, this afternoon. Thanks, thanks for having me. So, um, I have been reading you since Practical Demon Keeping, and I understand that book is 30 years old this year. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> I don't remember what month it came out of, but it, it came out, but it definitely came out in 1992. So uh, yeah, my, uh, my first book is now a grown up. So. <laughs> I, I want to say October. I remember reading it the minute it came out and loving it for the humor and the originality of the story. It was, it was just terrific. Thanks. Yeah, that sounds right. That sounds right. It, um, I see. I separated it as I sold it in 1990, and it didn't come out until until 1992 because that's how publishing works. And um, so I've I've sort of everything revolves for me around November of 1990, which is when I sold the book. Um, and so when people go, "Oh, your career's 30 years old," I'm like, "No, it's older than that." But I lie, so you know, it's fine. We all lie about our age. That's okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um. What I noticed in Razzmatazz and Noir is they strike me as being very loving tributes to Damon Runyon a little bit in tone. So was he yeah. an inspiration for you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, he wrote in that dialect, that present tense dialect that I just sort of slip in and out of in Razzmatazz and in um in noir, I kind of kept it quarantined to only when it was like a first person, you know, thing. But um, and most of, of noir is first person with with Sammy uh, uh, Tuto is making the narrating most of the book. But um, I slip back and forth because I will I'll grab a Damon Runyon story to sort of refresh um, the language. And and uh, I and everything he wrote was was present tense. And it's usually some guy at a diner or in a bar um, telling the story to somebody else, you know? Yeah, Mindy's, yeah. yeah. I have read all of Damon Runyon, so it, it's so much fun for me to read your books and hear how much you like him too in your writing. He's yeah, and I, yeah, and, and I tried to fold in, you know, the, the true noir, I mean, Damon Runyon's comedy, yeah. um, but I really tried to fold in all the tropes from, you know, like Jim Thompson and James M. Cain and, you know, even a little bit of Raymond Chandler and Mickey Spillane, who, who is really a 
dreadful writer, um, but but in such a fun way, it's it's sort of like okay, I'll, I'll go with that. Um, so so yeah, I used Runyon as my sort of gateway into the comedy part of that detective stuff, but then I sort of you know bop around hitting all the tropes of you know like wet streets and neon that you find in all of those noir uh, novels. And, and for our listeners, if you weren't aware, Damon Runyon is the author of Guys and Dolls, so everyone knows him for that. And he's and the original Lady Queen for a Day that the movie was based on. Um, but I can't remember that short story. I just I love him so much. I have all of his collections and they're just I go back to them all the time. Yeah, there's a I just found out about a Damon Runyon story or movie that I didn't know about um, because I was watching the uh, the Aaron Sorkin movie about Lucy and Desi. And when it starts out in her timeline, she's doing a Damon Runyon movie. And I didn't even know about it. So I have, I just put that on my cue list to watch. And I can't remember the name of it, but there is a like 1941 Lucille Ball, Damon Runyon movie that might be a nice introduction for people who don't know about, about uh, the kind of stuff that he did, which was all stories told from the point of view of sort of the uh, Manhattan underground of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, and um, all all first person, all present tense, and and all guys trying to sound smarter than they are. So they had they have this really sort of awkward way of indirectly saying things, which I love, and I and I use in the book as well. You know, referring to people as citizens rather than guys, and, uh, <laughs> um, you know, as as upstate uh, upstate citizens and. Um, and things of that nature that it, you know, this sort of fake formality to the way they speak is is pretty funny. Yeah, it is. And in that D's Dem Do's. Right. Exactly. That I love. I, I grew up in New York, so I every once in a while you can still hear that accent. And it's a little Miss Marker. That's the other uh, right. story that people know him for. That Shirley Temple movie. I what I also loved about his stories is how. At the end of each story, these guys are, they're so much nicer and they have, they have such large hearts. That always comes out at the end. They're always doing the right thing, even if they're uh, popping caps and shooting people. And I know. We're talking about putting, guy, putting guys in a sack in a very <laughs> civilized way, um, uh, which is there, which is, you know, and they, there's one of Damon Runyon's story where they actually go into the mechanics of how you have to tie a guy to get him in a sack to drop you know when you do that of course you're going to drop him in the bay but to, but to get him to fit in a sack it, and he, he sort of goes into the technical uh aspect of that and it's it's pretty harrowing it's sort of like yikes let's just go back to the guys playing cards and betting horses and all this kind of fun stuff you know so I know you bought you found inspiration in Damon Runyon and all those other those other writers you mentioned How'd you get to comedy noir after comedy horror and Shakespeare parody? Uh, do you see a pattern here? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not ashamed to say I sort of started my career by saying, okay, I'm going to make fun of these different things. And I, I remember sitting with a friend of mine as I was sort of formulating the idea for Practical Demon Keeping, my first book. And I said, well, I want to do for horror what... Um, Douglas Adams has done for science fiction. And, and so Practical Demon Keeping was sort of that, uh, taking all those kind of 
I guess you call them memes now, the tropes of science, of, of uh, horror and sort of working them into a comedy. And, and I didn't really have any, um, I didn't have any literary examples for that to sort of draft off of, you know, I, I, I didn't know of another, Robert Block um, used to write some funny horror stories, but they were short stories. And so I, I had never read a funny horror novel. Um, there were a number of movies, including Beetlejuice that came out right after, I think mm -hmm. about 1992, but there, there had been attempts at horror comedy and film, but not on, on, uh, uh, in, in a novel form. And, and so as you go along, you know, you're looking, I don't want to do the same thing I did yesterday. I don't want to do the same thing. I don't want to write the same book 27 times. Not that there's anything wrong with that. There's a lot of people who have made a good living doing that, but um, I didn't want to do that. And, and so I just sort of gravitated toward the things I like, you know, and, and we talked about, you know, Damon Runyon's, I was aware of him back 1981, 82, you know, um, somebody at a writer's conference turned me on to him. And I had always sort of thought, well, that would be a cool thing to do. And um, I think what was more compelling to, to write that type of story set in San Francisco was the history of San Francisco at the time, setting a story in 1947, a couple of years after the war, and all these massive social and cultural changes had gone on in the city uh, due to the war. And I wanted to write about sort of the intersection of all those different groups of people um, and, and the, I guess the underworld, but it's not really the underworld. It's just working guys. You know, it's a cab driver and bartender and a guy's a host at a nightclub, um, a guy who's a doorman at a nightclub. And that's sort of the, the cast of characters. Um, a, the main female character is a, a waitress at like a Woolworths lunch counter. Um, and, and, and one of the conventions of, of true noir is it's always some poor schlub who like works the desk at a hotel and some dangerous dame walks in and just completely upends his life. And so I wanted my guys to just be guys living a normal life. And they sort of get drafted into this uh, sort of bizarre crime, supernatural science fiction story that happens um, with the background of, science, of, of 1947 uh, San Francisco. And then when you decide, how am I going to tell it? Because anything that I, any idea I come up with is not, this is the idea. It, it has to be appended with and make it funny. Because that's, you know, and, and so I thought, well, Damon Runyon already made me laugh. So I'll go that direction. And I can cons uh, construct some of those really awkward similes that you find in, um, in detective fiction, but really go over the top with it. Just really... Uh, and, and noir has that more than Rasmataz does, but both the books have this sort of just uh, even the characters talk in these sort of uh, really high, uh, highly unlikely metaphors, um, which are which are just fun to construct and fun to read. And so so that's why I do it. I, well, there's one whole section in, in uh, noir where all we're getting is diner uh, mm -hmm. lingo which I think is hilarious. And I've always thought it was hilarious. It's like, oh, I'm going to put that in a book now. And, and there's just a, a brush with that in, in Rasmataz, but you had to, you had to revisit it. Cause when people, you know, you, I always want the books to stand on their own, but if you've read noir, you're going to go back and go, Hey, where's the diner lingo? You know? And so there's a couple of, of dots, Easter eggs, I guess, uh, to the diner lingo. I'm so glad you mentioned Easter eggs. I was going to ask you, where are they in noir or razzmatazz? And 
definitely the diner lingo one. I, I love that too. I was a waitress in a diner for a while and it was a lot of fun to use some of those, you know, Adam and Eve on a raft wreck them. And right, right, right. Like that. that was so much fun. So we know what makes you laugh. It's Damon Runyon. What, what scares you? Oh, I think the, the uh, overarching specter of death. Um, <laughs> Is that not, why you write about death and make it funny? No, 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 no. I, I, wrote, I wrote about death. Um, you know, I, I wrote A Dirty Job in Secondhand Souls. It's about a guy who gets the job of being death. And he's a bit of a hypochondriac. And I kind of first conceived of that idea just because of the irony of that of a guy who's, you know, I, I don't remember if you remember, I, I remember in being like seventh or eighth grade health class. And each time you would study a new thing, um, usually, it, when, especially on the month you were doing psychology, you'd go, well, that's, I got that. I'm definitely a schizophrenic or I'm definitely, you know, a manic depressive or whatever. And, and so, you know, a, a true hypochondriac is always, I thought, going to be in that situation of, you know, I coughed. Oh, it's got to be a tumor kind of thing. And, um, and so to have that guy get the job of being deaf, I thought would just be a lot of fun. Um, but then, you know, as I sort of came up with that idea, probably like the mid nineties, and then subsequently took care of my mother as she was dying of cancer. And then my wife's mother, as she was dying of cancer. And so I was up close and personal with it. And I thought, okay, I have something to say about this now. So, you know, write a book about death, have anecdotes that are based in, real experience um, and make it funny, which always has to be appended to everything I do. So yes, I've done that. I, I was actually joking when I said that's, that's what scares me. I, uh, I think the things that scare me are, are the things that scare everybody in, in the real world. I'm not necessarily a, afraid of a lot of the things I write about, you know, like monsters and moon men and all that kind of stuff. I, I'm more afraid of, uh, uh, you know, being jumped at the bus stop um, or, uh, you know, looking up from resetting the stereo in the car to going under a giant semi, you know, just a, that sort of stuff that that's sort of overarching. Not that it, um, not that it takes up a lot of my conscious day, hopefully, mm -hmm. but that's the kind of thing that scares me. But, but the stuff I put in books is different. It's stuff that, could scare me if I were in the situation that these characters are in. Um, and, and, and much less obviously in, um, in Noir and, and Rasmataz because these guys are just, they're up on the balls of their feet all the time. You know, they're, they're um, like I described myself for most of my early adult life, uh, they're one paycheck from homeless at all times. Um, and, That's and, scary. Yeah. That scares me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. As, as, um, working in the library system or as a bookseller, everybody knows what that's like. I knew what that was like for a long time. Um, uh, not ironically in 30 for, you know, since 30 years ago, that went away when I sold my first book. But up till that time, I was always, you know, one paycheck or, or two weeks from being homeless, you know? Um, and, uh, and a couple of times fell upon the kindness of, friends, not strangers, to not become homeless. So we're all, I, I think that fear of, I guess, really what would be ultimate failure, but the disenfranchisement from humanity. And that's, that's why I write about, um, I try to write about indig indig indigent people in my books with some compassion, 
um, going back to my first San Francisco book, uh, uh, Blood Sucking Fiends, there's uh, one of the main characters that maintains in all of those early San Francisco books, which are set in modern times, uh, is a, a character called the Emperor, who is this very grandiose uh, homeless guy who has declared himself Emperor of, of San Francisco. And then he, he feels the responsibility with having that job, even though, uh, and, and so even though he doesn't really have a job and, uh, and he lives on the streets and he sort of uh, is gracious um, in all things that he does. And he has a couple of dogs that are with him. And he was based on a, on a real guy that lived in the 1860s in San Francisco uh, named Emperor Norton. And uh, I'm not the, certainly the first one to write about uh, analogs of Emperor Norton. Uh, the King and Huckleberry Finn in Mark Twain is about Emperor Norton. And um, I'm trying to think of who else. I, I know Neil Gaiman wrote one of his graphic novels, has a story about Norton. And um, there's another reference that I've missed, but, but it's further back. It's back in the 1920s and so forth. But uh, so sort of this iconic historic figure that it represents a sort of uh, maintenance of dignity, even amid being indigent. But that's, a, that's going down a long rat hole of what are you afraid of, I guess, sorry. <laughs> no, I asked, I asked. Um... And then going back to what I asked on Twitter, what is so funny about horror? How do you find the funny in things that are supposed to be scary? I don't know. I just, I think that's my default uh, response to things. Even in the moment, I mean, I, even in the moment when I've been in sort of really awful situations, I tend to say things that are ironic or goofy, you know, as a, maybe it's a defense, you know? Uh, you know, the gallows humor, the whistling in the graveyard, that that sort of thing. Um, I remember before I'd written a novel, I was writing uh, short stories and so forth back in the 80s. And Kirby McCauley was this super agent who represented Peter Straub and, and Stephen King. And I think another big horror writer, maybe Dean Koontz, but I, I wouldn't swear to that. And he had written this anthology uh, or um, curated this anthology called Dark Forces of... of uh, current horror stories. And in the introduction, he said, it is my belief that horror is compatible with any genre except whimsy. And I went, what does that guy know? I'm going to write a whimsical horror novel. Um, and, uh, and I did. Uh, I, don't, I don't recommend that as a strategy for, for young writers, but that's what I did. Um, but I, I just think that it was needed. And it's something that I go naturally to. When I started, again, early eighties, I would take my stories to a writer's conference. And I thought there were horror stories and I would read them in front of the, the group and people would laugh in just the way I turned a phrase. And I sort of went, well, I guess that's what I do. Um, I guess I just is how the words come out because I didn't intend that to be the case. And I don't feel like they were laughing at me. I think it was just the way I, I turned a phrase. So I just sort of rolled with that because there was a ton of people writing horror stories but there was nobody writing funny horror stories. So that's how. I, I always laugh at your, at your horror stories. I think I laughed hardest reading Lamb. And that is one, one of the last books of yours that I ever read because everyone just kept, everybody who didn't know all your earlier work found you with Lamb and just could not stop recommending that book enough in audio, in print. And I listened to that and just howled from beginning to end. And that's, it's comedy. It's you, those really 
witty turns of phrase, but that's a different kind of book. How did you get to that? Um, has anyone cast oh. you to the devil for blasphemy or whatever? Because no, I, well, and but for uh, you know, for the uninitiated, Lamb is the gospel according to Biff, Christ's childhood pal. And it's the it's the story of basically the missing years of Jesus, um, but his entire life from about age six to to age thirty three, um, told by his best friend Biff, who is such a rascal he's written out of the Gospels. Um, he would have been the thirteenth apostle, um, or fourteenth if you count Mary Magdalene. Uh, so so I I really started that with the idea. It occurred to me as most things do as a notion like watching a documentary or something. I think um, I, I was reading uh, The Master and Margarita by uh, Bulgakov um, that had been recommended to me by a writer friend. And it's a 1920s Russian uh, post-revolution sort of absurdist comedy. And in it, it had this scene of the trial of Jesus with Pontius, from the point of view of Pontius Pilate. And Pilate has a migraine. And he, and he just wants this kid to go away. He just, he, he's not engaged in it. He doesn't really care. It's just, he's in that bright uh, Jerusalem sunlight and he just wants to be out of it. And, and it made it so immediate. You know, it made it so, it's like, I was reading and I think I've read this story a thousand times, but because of those elements of realness, um, it, it made it more real than I had ever, you know, of those humanity, I guess is what was in it. Um, and so I thought, I wonder what would happen if you did the whole story that way, that whole familiar story. And then a few weeks later, I saw this special on uh, PBS called From Jesus to Christ. And somebody said, um, there are 30 years in the, in the Gospels that are not covered. And nobody knows where Jesus was. And I went, I don't know anything about history or theology. I should write that. And that sort of is where Lamb took off. And it was a, a massively ambitious project for me. But I was at a point in my career where I thought, I have got to swing for the fences. There's no, my books had done okay, but I, they weren't doing as I wanted them to do. And I thought, I've got to do something big and risky. And, and most importantly, something I don't know if can be done. I wasn't sure that you could write that story and make it funny. Um, and so I, I, and I wanted to be respectful to people of faith. It doesn't, there's nowhere in that book that questions that I just made the assumption that whatever the gospels say Jesus did, he did and go from there. But what goes on around those things, like the, the wedding at Cana and all those things, you know, and um, th that's where I filled in the blanks and, and had a lot of fun doing it and, and sort of taking these characters that in the gospels, some of them literally don't have a line. I mean, some of the apostles don't speak in, in the four gospels at all. And so you have to sort of build their whole personality from one line maybe, or their description, um, or just where, they're, where they meet them, you know, along the road. And so I, I sort of uh, approached it that way and, uh, it, and just ex did exactly that, just filled in the blanks, just figured out how do you go from being this little kid who lives in a small town in Israel to the guy who saves the world, you know? Um, and uh, it, it worked out. I, we didn't have any backlash. Everybody asks, did you have any backlash? We didn't, it, it was a book, it stayed under the, those people don't read. 
Um, it stayed under the radar, you know. Um, if it had been a movie, it, it might have been, um, but but it it wasn't. Um, and uh, we at, at one point, I was living in California, and I, but I was, you know, calling my friends in Ohio, going, "Look, if if you burn these books, I'll buy them." Um, just to get on the radar, we were sending it to the the sort of pundits of the time, the religious pundits of the time, the Jimmy Swaggerts and the Jerry Falwells and, and, um, and, and saying, you know, can you believe this blasphemy? You know, hoping that they'd pick up on it. And nobody ever, ever did. Nobody. I think I've had literally tens of thousands of, of emails about that book and maybe four have been negative. And of those four, only one person actually read the book. They just didn't, they didn't like the book the idea of it you know it it just talked them that they didn't like the idea of it so oh man that's because that's how you if that's that's one thing that the book banners don't understand is that you tell people not to read it and they will read it and that's like that's a boon for author sales look at that <laughs> one, of the, one of the things i'm most proud of is i was told by a, a librarian from wasilla that who uh Wasilla Alaska, who, who emailed me that one of the books that Sarah Palin had proposed pulling out of the Wasilla library was Lamb. And I was like, yes, you know, spike the ball. Um, exactly. That's a, Lamb, I think, is, is your masterpiece. It's, it's yeah. comic, literary. It, it's, it's literary comedy. It, and it's also touching. I remember feeling quiet uh, i mean just as amused but quiet at the very end of lamb and saw the respectful tone and the way you were treating the end of of jesus's life and biff's observation of all that it was that was that was touching so well uh, it's good i mean that and all of that just comes from the ambition katie you know that's and, and I, that's and and i've even had my editor go well you know if you could write another one like lamb and i go greatest story ever told uh what what do i do that that i can have that kind of ambition again you know i think the the thing that maybe comes the closest for me is a book i wrote called sacre bleu uh, um that is my second favorite i love that one and that was you know i'm going to write a book about the color blue and i'm going to do it through the eyes of the french impressionists and i'm gonna make it funny um, I and, love that book. And that probably is as close in ambition as, as Lamb was, but yeah, I, just, I can't do Lamb again, you know? And, and one of the reasons I, you know, people say, well, are you, you know, why don't you do a sequel, do another Lamb, do the sequel to Lamb. And I'm like, I, I know what's going to happen. I'll write it. And you'll go, you know, it was good, <laughs> but it wasn't as good as Lamb. Um, and I, I just, I think that book stands on its own. I mean, it's a, it, it does what it does. It's it's sad that it's sort of like earlier than the midpoint of my career, and I'm like, yeah, it's yeah, it's my magnum opus. What did you want me to do? Quit? I still had a house <laughs> payment, um, but uh, I I can't replicate that, you know, um, just because I, there's no story that I can come up with that is that big. Um, it's, yeah, it's terrific. Hey, Stephen King wrote The Stand, middle of his career. He's still going. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I think that actually counts toward the beginning of his career. Stephen King's always the, he's like the Usain Bolt of writing. You know, <laughs> he, people, people always bust that out and they're like, why aren't you running the 100 meters in 10 seconds? And I'm like, uh, not Usain Bolt, you know, and, and uh, 
And that's what people are like, well, you know, Stephen King is like, yeah, he's anomalous. You know, he's, he's there's Stephen King and then there's everybody else. So. I'm so glad you mentioned Sacre Bleu. I think I read that one before I read Lamb. And that one, I thought, wow, this is so different from anything you'd written up to that point. And I listened to it and I loved, that's when I fell in love with you and Morton as the narrator for, for Sacre Bleu. And then moved on to him for all your, cool your and- parodies i i love that series i love you and morton as the voice of pocket the fool um as much as i love johnny heller he's the voice of sammy yeah um you and morton is, is a again for the audience he is an actor a broadway actor um of scottish descent uh, when they said who do you want to read pocket uh, for my shakespeare um, and again, for the uninitiated, Pocket is King Lear's fool. And the first book, Fool, is King Lear told from the point of view of the fool and who in the play dies in the first act. So, um, or disappears in the first act, let's put it that way. And, uh, and they said, well, this guy's Scottish. And I listened to some samples and I was, let's do this guy. And Ewan can do all the accents. Like when, he's, when he does Gloucester, he's doing a, a Gloucester accent. When he does Cornwall, he's doing a Cornwall accent. And, and he does, uh, I love, and the, and the things that are just purely his interpretations, when he does the servants, they're always a little bit Cockney. Yeah. Uh, they're always working class. And um, uh, in, in, in uh, The Serpent of Venice, there's like 32 named characters in that, male and female. And so to make them distinct, he did uh, Iago and uh, Emilia, his wife, as Scots, so that you always knew when. When uh, he really a brilliant guy, brilliant actor. Um, I could I couldn't be happier with how he he did that. I think your narrators, they they can crawl into your mind and figure out exactly what the humor is when they narrate your books, and that just makes it even better for a reader listener. I think they, I think they like it. The ones I've had contact with, they, I think they enjoy doing the books. I know Johnny Heller really likes doing uh, the noir books and um, I've never met uh, Fisher Stevens, but he does, I think He's good. two or three of my books. He does lamb and a yes. dirty job and secondhand souls. And he, he was brilliant. I love to listen to your work. I'm always thrilled when you have a new novel out and I'm so glad that the publishers dropped the audio at the same time because I love to listen to your words in my ears. I get, I feel like I get more, more comedy, more joke. I know I pick up far more of the subtle jokes that you're working into your writing. Oh, good, good. Do you listen when you're driving or just sort of out and about or doing housework or? Um, I listen when I walk a lot, especially right. what, and when I walk, I get a little picky about what I listen to. So I like to listen to, you when I walk because then I can then I can completely focus on the story because who cares where I'm going but if I'm driving and I'm listening to really witty patter then I don't want to I don't want to miss a thing and pay attention to the road so right so I won't do that and uh, or housework or if I'm cooking yeah then I will but mostly when I'm walking and Thankfully, your books made me walk a lot during the pandemic. That's when I listened to Shakespeare for Squirrels and oh, good. laughed all around the block. And people thought, what is that woman 
cackling about. <laughs> I know I, I get that when I listen to David Sedaris books. Yes. You know, I, I, I was listening to his last one when I was driving and I was dangerous at one point. I was on the freeway and <laughs> in, in pretty bad traffic. And, and he he did that. Sedaris will just go along and go along and go along. And then he'll drop a line that'll just slay me. And, and, you know, of course he reads them. So he knows the timing and, and I was like, okay, can't do that anymore. That's not safe. (laughs) That almost happened to me listening to uh, really intense things. I was like, okay, now time to do nonfiction or podcasts when we drive. Yeah. There's a, there's a certain lightness that I need. And also um, there's some historical fiction and stuff I can't listen to when I drive because I'll space out and miss it. Yeah. You know? And I'm like, well, I don't, now I don't know what they're talking about. You know, <laughs> yeah. I do that too. And so it's like, okay, let's rewind and go back to what we're doing. Well, um, I know you've used Google and I Googled you just to see what, cause I was looking for your website and found some really interesting things under the people also ask when I plugged in Google. So if you're willing, um, People also ask some pretty unusual questions. Are you willing to play a really quick people also ask game? Sure. Chris Moore? All right. Uh, so these are these are in order. And so it's kind of bizarre. First one, what happened to Chris Moore? Uh, I don't know. You know what? There's a there's a number of Christopher Moores. Yeah. <laughs> and one of them had a stroke and wrote a book about it. I got like, and I hadn't heard about it, but I got like two or three sympathy notes hope you're healing up and i'm like me too um so anyway your next question that was that was one of like first one was what happened to christopher moore and then the second one was did christopher moore have a stroke (laughs) that was not me evidently christopher moore did have a stroke and i'm like how is that the first thing coming up i have 10 new york times bestsellers how is the first thing that comes up is that my stroke i didn't have you know (laughs) so where should i start with christopher moore Oh man, I think I think Lamb is a good gateway book. Mm-hmm. Practical Demon Keeping, if you're going to go the whole gauntlet, um, uh, I don't recommend unless you're a Shakespeare fan starting with the Shakespeare books because they take a little bit used to mm-hmm. getting used to. You know, you haven't you have to establish like uh, your faith in me that I'm going to bring you through this because it's good. and the same with Soccer Blur. It's like I don't know if that's the best place to start. Uh, Lamb is a good gateway book. A Dirty Job is a good gateway book. And that's my, uh, that's set. And those are nice uh, juxtaposition because Lamb is historical and A Dirty Job is modern. If you like vampire stuff, read Bloodsucking Fiends, You Suck and Bite Me. You know, mm-hmm. they're, uh, they're light, they're short and they're fun. You know, so. Are any Christopher Moore books made into movies? No, no. Um, most of them have been optioned or bought outright at some time or another. Some of them multiple times. Um, and I think, I think Coyote Blue has been optioned like six times by six different companies and, uh, uh, a dirty job has been either optioned or worked on, uh, by maybe seven or eight people. And, uh, so, so I don't know why they're not getting made. I mean, they don't, nobody asks me, so I can't be the reason, um, (laughs) Yeah, you know, I was like, well, that's my personality. And it was like, no, that's not it. But um, but none yet. And and Stupidest Angel, which is my Christmas book, um, got as close as I mean, they were had rented studio space and hired a caterer and and the financing fell out. So I don't 
I don't know why not, but um, you know, there's three or four in development now and none of them are in any danger of getting made right away, but hope springs eternal. Oh, I would love to see one of your books on the silver screen. That would be terrific. Yeah. I really like the idea of a limited series for some of them, because I think that yeah. that's a better way to, to see a novel. I, I mean, when I think about everybody wants to see lamb as a movie, and all that, I really think that would be better in like 10 hours rather than two. I think if you, if you make it in two and you have the same Jesus story, everybody else has told, if you make it in eight or 10, that's a little bit more development. And, and so I, I sort of have just uh, modified my expectations for saying, you know, maybe, you know, do it on Netflix or prime or, you know, Disney plus or something. Um, uh, you know, some of them do lend themselves to film, but, but most of them I, I would rather see in a series. No, you'd get more of the humor then you'd get you get far more of the humor and the character development and the humor informs the character so you would certainly get more than that in a limited series right is christopher moore working on a new book i am i don't have a, a title for it yet but it's uh it's set in northern europe uh in the 1910s and it's uh i'll just say it has freud young Klimt and Egon Schiele in it, and um, and they're all characters, and and so it's going to uh, sort of uh, revolve around Vienna in in uh, the 1910s, uh, which is what historians call a genius cluster, you know, where you had all these great geniuses in different fields in one place, and um, we'll see, you know. <laughs> That's going to be fun that you're going that you're doing comedy historical and right. i'm i can already see the connections between that one and soccer blue that's going to be a lot of i'm really looking forward to that one now yeah it, I, it's it's going to be difficult to do just like soccer blue was but but it's exciting to learn about all that stuff and and uh, uh the only problem right now is that jung and freud both wrote tens of thousands of pages so the the research for it is a little bit uh intimidating but i'm doing it so that's where I am now. This has been so much fun, Chris. I don't want to keep you much longer. Um, I did promise a, I would pull a tarot card for you if you want from that pulp tarot deck. Uh, yeah, that's cool. I looked that up when I saw that um, on Twitter and you had, I was like, and it's sold out. So I was like, well, I would like to have that and you can't have that. So It's beautiful. It is just a stunning deck. The art is really nice. I've I read tarot cards. I've been doing it for about 30 years. And when my friend Greg gave me this, I thought, oh, this might be fun to show Christopher Moore. So why don't you pick a number between 1 and 21? 17. Ooh. 17 is my favorite card in the deck. It is the star. Yay. Hold that up. But look at the art on that. Isn't that terrific? I know. It looks like Maxfield Parish. It looks like 20s. It does. Yeah. It looks like Maxfield Parish. And the star, really good card for you to pick because it's about our hopes and aspirations and dreams. So if that's the card you picked for today, then I would say that what's been fluttering around your mind is... What are you hoping for with this next book? What are your your what are you reaching for? And also just tapping into your intuition to guide you in what you're doing next. Oh, well, that's cool. Thanks. 
Yeah, it's a very hopeful card. Well, thanks, Katie. This has been fun. This has been a delight. It's been really great to meet you. I've been reading you since Practical Demon Keeping. When cool. it was that little white cover and it was just the little demon hands. I love that cover. Cool. I Well, maybe I'll get to Kansas City someday. Thank you, Katie. Take okay. care. Thank you so much. Thanks. You too. Bye. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Love Fest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. Lastly, if you enjoy our show, we bet you'll enjoy all of the other podcasts from HarperCollins Publishers. Find a list of shows at harpercollins.com forward slash podcast. See you next week.